0: This is a headgum podcast.
1: Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by Visible, a new phone service that gives you unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just 4 dollars a month, all in. Thank you for listening to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox. Our guest this week is Anthony Jeselnik, the, as he puts it, pinnacle of a certain sort of dark, offensive style of joke writing and my mom's favorite comedian. When he was in college, Anthony wanted to be a novelist, and Brett Easton Ellis was his favorite author. I mention this because... Though Anthony never became a novelist, as he quickly tossed that dream aside, over the course of his 17 years in stand-up, he has created an American Psycho-esque character. This persona of his, ego-driven, pompous, evil, is one of the great achievements in modern stand-up. It's a villain he can use to talk about the inappropriate and the taboo to help his audience process the parts of life that are hard to accept. Mortality, illness, suicide, murder... Yeah, so, so essentially just mortality. And somewhere in there, there's always Anthony the person, creating as his stand-up has evolved a compelling paradox, uh, a question of what is real and what is fiction. What was interesting about doing this interview in front of an audience, live at Clusterfest, was seeing how in front of my eyes, Anthony would sort of tune up or tune down the persona, depending on where in the question he was or if the audience hadn't laughed in a while. In Fire at the Maternity Ward, his newest Netflix special, which came out earlier this year is the most mature, complicated display of this persona to date. The twisted one-liners are there, but more and more you see these extended bits that play with the attention and the audience's expectations of both Anthony Jeselnik the persona and Anthony Jeselnik the comedian. The joke we talk about is one such example. I can't say more without spoiling it, so I won't. Here is Anthony Jeselnik. Jokes are all well and good.
0: I'd like to take a couple minutes right now and talk about something that is important to me. And I will preface this by saying there's a lot of people right now who say that stand-up comedians should just stick to comedy and not talk about anything else. I disagree. I think that stand-up comedy doesn't always have to be funny. Stand-up comedy doesn't always have to be entertaining. Sometimes it's about speaking truth to power. Sometimes it's about pointing out wrongs in the world even though it might not be popular. So please indulge me. With all the terrible things going on in America right now, and you know exactly what I'm fucking talking about. (laughs) With all the terrible things going on in this country right now, the thing that drives me the most crazy are the people who see all this awful stuff happening, and they still flip out over the little things. My biggest pet peeve in America today people will see all this horrible stuff going on and yet they still overreact to shit that just does not matter. For example, have you ever dropped a baby? Holy shit, do people overreact. You drop a baby in America today, I swear, people hit the roof before the baby even touches the floor. And it's not a big deal. How do I know? Because I do it all the time. In fact, I don't think I've ever held a baby (laughs) to completion. (laughs) And you might be thinking, Anthony, how could you drop a baby? You ever held a baby? (laughs) How could you not? It's so easy. It's a two-step process. Maybe less. Should you ask Anthony, why would anyone ever let you hold their baby? The answer is simple. Negligence. I love it. It's a hobby. The only negative The only drawback, as far as I'm concerned, the embarrassment. People try to shame you when you drop their baby. (laughs) Even though I almost always make it look like an accident. That's why this is so great, you ever do this? You ever drop a baby? and then scoop it right back up before anybody sees you. No shit, best feeling in the world. You just hand the baby back and no one is the wiser, especially not that baby. happened to me just last weekend I was at a party one of my friends came up and said Anthony I gotta go to the bathroom will you hold my baby <laughs> and I tell the truth I'm always hundred percent honest I say yeah for a little bit Held that baby 30, 45 seconds seconds—a personal best. Dropped the baby. Scooped it right back up before anybody saw me. And it was close too. Had to run down three flights of stairs.
1: the comedian behind the joke you just watched, Anthony Jeselnik.
0: Thank you for having
1: me. Oh, thank you for being here. What was it like listening to it again? Did you miss that joke?
0: I love it. I love it so much that it was great to hear. Like, I don't listen to my special all the time, but when I got to see that, I, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs>
1: So I want to back up a little bit to provide some context to, in which this joke and the special was written, uh, specifically Thoughts and Prayers, which came out in October 2015 and ended with your longest joke to date, which was about the reaction to a shark party. Um, <laughs> it was structurally and radically different than anything you've done. What inspired you to do that bit at the time, and what did you learn from doing it? Uh, from the thoughts and prayers or the bit we just saw? Starting from the shark party bit from thoughts and prayers.
0: I mean, shark, thoughts and prayers, the entire special was basically me getting something out of my system. I had done a TV show. My star had risen. I got a show on Comedy Central. The show was canceled. And I felt like a failure because of that. Uh, I think there were great things on the show. There were bad things on the show. But I felt like... I'm upset over this. I need to get it out of my system. And uh, Thoughts and Prayers was doing that. So talking about Shark Party, talking about the different things that got me in trouble that led me to cancellation, uh, let me own the narrative Mm -hmm. and get it out of my system completely. What did you learn from doing that such a long
1: joke? Or to do with more
0: story? Just that it was fun. I mean, (laughs) telling jokes (laughs) one after another, it can even get stale for me who is a joke teller that being able to tell a story i could relax more i could get into it more i could find more places for laughter and that uh, that was interesting to me that uh, i think it's something i'll explore more in the future
1: L- leaving that special and as you're looking to like you know you're going to do another one at some point what did you did you have any goals before you even started writing, of like what you might want the next one to be like?
0: Yes, I just I felt like Thoughts and Prayers was such like a cathartic experience that I just wanted to rock the fuck out. Like I wanted to just be like, let's have fun and just make something that's just fucking awesome and I'm not getting anything off my chest. I'm just like, I'm just being as great as I am.
1: <laughs> so before we talk about this baby dropping joke, I feel like we should touch on the fact that this is in fact the third special in a row in which you do a baby dropping joke. Yeah. Um, so, Caligia, which is your first, do you remember that joke? No, but I'm sure if you told me I would remember it. Sure.
0: I, I have to a- everything just to move on. Uh, it's not because I'm wasted. <laughs> My little sister had a baby recently, you know, a little newborn. Kid is so cute. But she won't let me hold him. She refuses. Says, no way, Anthony, I'm afraid you're gonna drop him. Like I'm some kind of idiot. Like I don't have a million other ways to hurt that babe. <laughs> Great joke. Uh, I remember once David Tell saying he was like, He's been doing comedy for, like, 50 years. And he's like, and I was just so happy the other day thinking of a new midget joke. Like, some people just have their thing that they like a lot. And for me, anything harming babies is, like, I can't believe I came up with another one. Like, I've had so many, and so each new one gets funnier and funnier because it's like, wow. You came up with a new angle on it.
1: And I've got, I've got more jokes about kids than people who have kids. Sure. Uh, so thoughts and prayers, do you remember that one? is about your cousin's baby, dropping your cousin's baby. That's what this whole thing's about. I'm not good with kids. I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> Hell, a couple of months ago, I dropped my cousin's baby. Flat out dropped my cousin's baby on the ground. But I don't feel like that was my fault. I don't feel responsible for that one. You know? I mean, who in their right mind Who the hell in their right mind would ever ask me, Anthony Jeselnik, to be a pallbearer? (laughs) Yes. Excellent twist. I didn't see it coming. And I wrote it and performed it. Uh, Yeah, like if, I mean, it's, it's, you revisit the same subject but the joke is so different each time that I'm like, I don't feel like I'm retreading it's like, wow I went even deeper I think if you, if you, if you keep yourself in a box, you can be brilliant, because you're in such a tight box, mm. if you can do anything and just talk who cares <laughs> So um, I'm
1: throwing every comedian in the world under the bus <laughs> right now so uh, one doesn't make it through their 30s without considering if they want kids. And whether it is conscious or not, I feel like that thinking is somewhere in this joke. What is your relationship to the idea of having kids, whether it's your friends having kids or yourself having kids? It's funny. My, my therapist once, I, I, I see a therapist,
0: if you can believe that, was like, do you ever think about kids? And I was like, I don't think so. But like, should I? And she was like in seven years, you've never mentioned children. That I was like, okay, I really don't care. I have God kids who I love and adore and dote on. I have nieces and nephews who I love that I'm like, you know what? I like my life. Like, I'm going to be okay. I'm not like, oh, I need to have kids to fulfill something. And people will say, like, your life is hollow without children. And I'm like, you have, you have no idea what my life is like.
1: My life is incredible. So uh, around when Fire and the Maternity War came out, you released a video of the 254 set lists that were used to between the start of working on it and the eventual special. Um, so you started in basically January 2016 and you taped the special in November 2018. But as a result, I believe you can pinpoint exactly when this joke was worked on, which was essentially between May 2000. May 2017 and August 2017. So let's start from where I believe it started, which is May 25th at the comedy store. You debut a joke called Three Flights uh, between a joke about the kid who fell on your fence and the joke about the kid with the glass eye. Which both those jokes made it to the special if you've not seen the special. What a fucking uh, nerd, huh? <laughs> you're the one who released every setlist in a classically scored music. I know, but you're the only one who gave a shit. I know. <laughs> Literally, I was like, this is only for me, and I appreciate it. It was so useful. So the joke started as three flights. It eventually merged to another joke, you'll see. That's a spoiler for what's coming. So what was the original joke? Because it seems like it started with the joke that's at the end. I, th- I, I mean, I don't
0: remember exactly, but from what you've described, it sounds like I thought of I dropped a baby, but I scooped it up before anyone saw me. And it was close to... I had to run down three flights of stairs. That was probably how it started. And then I was just like, let me see if I can build this. Yeah. And how much I can put into it. And a lot of it was honestly my comedian peers' reaction to Donald Trump. And everyone is like... All, every comedian is all of a sudden attacking Trump. Where Twitter went from here's a joke to... Did you know the senator said... And I'm like... This is fucking nuts. Like I had to mute half the people I follow. And I agree with them. I am as liberal as they come. But as a comedian, I was like, this is revolting. And it's bad comedy. And it's comedy for the sake of verifying someone's opinion as opposed to making them laugh. And I thought, this is an opportunity. Let me make them think I'm going that way. And then it's about dropping babies. And that to me was the goal. And that's why I enjoyed the joke so much that I wanted to talk about it tonight. Like, it really was that opportunity of like, here's a problem in the world. How do you attack it without
1: being passe? So in terms of writing, especially this part of the joke, which is a very jokey joke, what is, how do you do it? How's the most basic of, like, how does Anthony like write jokes? I write, I mean,
0: I, when I'm working on my act, I write every day. I try to write a couple jokes, and they're usually bad. It's like, even if it's a bad joke, fine, write it down. And then my brain is working that way. Most of this bit came from me driving from my condo to the comedy store. And thinking, like, I'm doing this joke tonight. Oh, I thought of another thing, funny thing to say. It really was the comedy store that helped me develop all of this. It was just like I would write but then I would come up with like a last minute like what if I try this? And eventually the joke gets too heavy yeah. where the material it's like it's almost too much that you're like all right the joke is perfect where it
1: is. But it was all it was all that. What's generally your ratio of things you write things you write down in your apartment to things that get on stage and then things that make it into a special? 5% Like literally,
0: one joke for every 20 jokes I write makes it into the act, at best. I mean, if you told me it was 40, I wouldn't be surprised. But it really is like you are going to sit here and crucify yourself until the act comes together. But it is humiliating yourself on stage with new jokes that don't work, and you go home and write. If I go up on stage and kill, I think, you know what? I'm the man. And I'm right. But... If I have a bad set, I go home and I, I, I work more. So I really need to have that process. I can't just sit at home and,
1: and write and then go on tour. And I yeah. see comics who do that. And I can tell. In, in an interview you said when you were starting out, it was like the audience was going to see a random movie and it turned out to be a horror movie. And it takes you a while to figure out what you're watching and you're like, okay, this is a horror film. Now people know exactly what they're coming to see. As a result, how has your sort of how you wrote, bright punchlines, especially the sort of the big ending, how has that changed in terms of, you've described it as sort of trying to build a puzzle or sort of a magic trick, how has that evolved, especially in this special?
0: I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how to answer that because it makes it harder. People definitely are expecting a twist and they're trying to guess the entire time. I just go on stage and I try the joke and if they laugh at it, I know that I fooled them. Yeah. People will listen to the special and be like, I guessed every punchline. No, you didn't. Because I've, seen, I've been in crowds where people have to laugh. If they guess the punchline, the joke doesn't work. And occasionally, a joke will be easier to figure out than another one. Yeah. But that's like, I'm a pitcher, and I don't want everything to be a fastball. I like when the crowd guesses a joke, because that means they get confident about the next one. And then I fuck them up forever. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mind that some of them are easier than yeah. others, but it has to get a
1: laugh. It's like you try the jokes that you like, and you keep the jokes that they like. How can you tell that they guessed it? I mean, it's, it's something about it that I mean. As even watching, I'm like, you, your brain tries to get there. How can you tell when they guessed it? It's a confident laughter.
0: Have you ever seen a mo- like you, you see a trailer for a movie or a commercial for a comedy, and they show a big joke in the trailer? where they show a big joke in the commercial. And you see the movie and you see the scene and you're like, this is coming up. yeah. And then the joke happens and you're like, no one's gonna laugh because they've seen it a million times. People laugh harder than anything else (laughs) in the movie. And that is my least favorite laugh in the world. I want it to be hard. And sometimes people just feel comfortable laughing if they know that they're right, yeah.
1: or if they know that they're accepted already, and I, I don't like that, so I try to avoid it. So for a thing like this, like ultimately are you writing the setup of you dropped a baby and then you're just hoping your brain generates a thing that ultimately was this punchline? Are you, how is this, what happens in your brain as you sort of go from setup to punchline?
0: I assume for this joke, I mean it's different every time. There's no formula. Dan Mintz once told me, he was like, if you have a formula for a joke, or formula for jokes, all your jokes are going to be bad. You need to have everything be able to break, uh, break out of that formula. Uh, but for this joke, I believe I thought of the idea of dropping a baby, which is already humiliating and awful, and then the idea of I picked it up, but I had to run down three flights of stairs. Like, that to me was so fucking funny that I was like, how can I build around this? Yeah but my favorite part of the joke is probably like I've never held the baby to completion (laughs) like there are just like things that come to you in that moment that you're like oh this
1: is uh, this is great but it starts with some sort of uh, some sort of equation the next period of this joke so it went from three flights in your set list to turned into drop baby so three flights was on your set list for all your shows between May 25th and July 5th where you were mostly at the store and then for the next two weeks, it sort of, you use Drop Baby to close sets while, inter- while still doing three flights. And then sort of over time, eventually, it became Drop Baby as we see it. So sort of what is the negotiation you're having? Are you still being like, oh, maybe it's still the one-liner. Maybe there isn't enough here to do it as a full thing. What is the thing you're trying to figure out if there's legs there? I think I just didn't figure out the connection for a while where I could do, like, I was
0: doing two different bits and then realized I can combine it and some bits are easier to remember than others, that like my abortion bit at the end of the special that that's from, that I had to have like every beat written down on my set list, but the baby dropping, it was like, I got it. <laughs> like I knew what was funny, how to make it funny and where to hit it, that uh, that bit was just a joy.
1: <laughs> so. The joke starts with the idea of the importance of comedy. You say, I think stand up comedy doesn't always have to be funny. Mm-hmm. Do you very much disagree with what you just said there? Do you 100%. Like- 100%. I, just,
0: I was embarrassed by the way some of my friends reacted to the election. And again, I could not be more liberal, but I was just like, everyone sounds like a fucking pussy right now. Let's fucking step up and you can be a badass and still be on the right side of things. I assume this is a San Francisco crowd, you guys are not Trump people, but a lot of my fans are. And I was like, you know what, let's find a way to pull them in and then fuck with them. You know, like, it's it's not, I'm not pandering to anyone. You can come and see me, you can, like, I don't talk about politics. You can be like, I'm, I, I enjoy that. I don't feel bad, but you get what I give you. And I end the show with a 15-minute story about abortion that people walk out on because they think I'm on their side, and then they're like, oh, no, he's not. But this was a way to not be like, that Cheeto-haired. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what are you doing? You're embarrassing yourself. That I thought, make it real comedy and also play with that, that notion. So this is ultimately your... I, mean, as you say, I love year. how silent the crowd is. Like, it's very funny to me. I'm like, God damn, people are mad. Like, they, you assume they think you should be railing against Trump. I don't know. I don't know if they're like, you should be talking more about... I, I don't know what audience audiences think. And to be honest, I don't care. Uh, I love the term, fuck your fans. Like, who gives a shit? Uh, but I would, as, if I was a fan of a comedian... I would want them to feel that way, so
1: I don't, uh, I don't feel bad. There's a couple lines of this joke that you mentioned, which is, I don't think I ever had a baby to completion. You, Did do you, do you think you riffed that on stage while you are sort of doing that? Or do you think that was an in-the-car thing? I think it was an in-the-car thing.
0: Most things are in-the-car things. Occasionally, I riff something funny, but it's mostly in
1: the car. One of my favorite parts of this joke is the word scoop and scooped. Mm-hmm. I think it is the exact word you needed to use. Any it word. had to be scoop. It couldn't have been
0: pick up. It had to be scoop. You're 100% right. <laughs> scoop is just a great, uh,
1: just the idea of scooping up a baby <laughs> is funny. Watching this, I was thinking about, I can't remember where, I heard someone I, talking to you or making fun of how slowly, slowly you talk on stage, but this was a while ago. Then compared to this, it's nothing compared to how slow you talk in this special. It's funny,
0: I don't think of myself as talking slowly. I think of myself as timing things perfectly. Uh, And I really believe that it's like, I did a roast where they made fun of me as like, I'm a nobody on a roast. You know what I mean? They've got like C-list celebrities that they're excited about. So they don't give a shit about me. So it was either like, he's a rapist or he talks slow. And so people use that narrative, but I really believe that like, if I sped it up, it would ruin the joke. Like it's part of the performance. It's like, why are ballerinas on their fucking tiptoes? It's part of the fucking thing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's take a break for a second from the comedy to be so very serious. Look, if I know you, which I do, I know you've been frustrated with your phone service. We've all been there. So I've got some honestly pretty cool news for you. There's a new phone service out called Visible. Long story short, you've got unlimited everything, including data, at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network. For, dramatic pause, 40 bucks a month. Dun, dun, dun. There are no annual contracts, no hidden fees, and no stores. That's right, you never have to walk into a phone store again. Thank God I hate stores. Learn more at Visible.com. I mean, I, think, I feel like it's ultimately you would just need more words. The timing would be the same. You would just need more words. So instead you just pause. I'm all about economy of words. Uh, the shorter the
0: better uh, when it comes to jokes. But I just find that I want people to guess and guess wrong. So you hold the pause. So someone's like, I know where he's going. And you're like, no, you do not. <laughs> you know. And if they guess a couple,
1: great. But I, But I really believe that the pause... Fools, people. Um, the, the big pause of this joke. There's the big, for example, big pause. Have you ever dropped a baby? And rewatching the special, I was struck um, by another special it reminded me of um, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette. <laughs> of course, uh, it's incredibly similar. The greatest special of all time. <laughs> <laughs> they are both specials about tension. Structurally, you're both tension creators. She says the word tension more. You're I don't know if you're mad that I am correct.
0: <laughs> I think this is hilarious, and I can't wait to hear the question. So ultimately... Like, I love it.
1: One, how do, Well, I'll stop here. What do you think about that comparison? Do you see that comparison, how you're both... You've, I assume you've watched it? I have. I, I, like. It's funny, because I waited a long
0: time. When I'm working on my act, I don't watch anybody's special. Because I'm afraid there will be a joke. Like, Louis C.K. had a special 2017, his last before... Everything happened. Uh, and they're like, he has an abortion joke he opens with. And I'm like, I can't watch the whole special. And Chris Rock was like, It's nothing like yours. But I'm like, I still don't want to watch it because I don't want to see that. But so I didn't watch anything. And then my manager one night was like, reference Nanette. And I was like, Oh, I've never seen it. And she goes, Anthony, you talk about it all the time. But I just think the name Nanette, Nanette is funny. Like I just laugh at the idea of titling a comedy special "Ninette," and then I watched it, and to be quite honest, it didn't apply to me. Yeah, I've never told a self-deprecating joke in my life. Everything is outwards. Everything is like punching out that I'm not like. I understand what she means, but like you chose that, like you just—it's like being a cop and being like you don't know what being a cop is like. It's like yeah, motherfucker, I didn't become a cop.
1: You're the cop. Deal with it. But you did agree with the tension part. I mean, for you, how do
0: you think about... A little bit. I mean, the tension... But I I release the tension every 30 seconds. Nanette is like, hey, do you want to hear about this woman who got the shit beaten out of her for an hour? And then she'll talk about it, and at the end, there's like a cathartic moment. I don't want to see that. (laughs) Like, I don't think it's bad. I just... If I'm going to go out and see a comedy show, I want it to be funny. I want to hear jokes. I don't want to hear your life story or that your girlfriend broke up with you, or about your depression. We all got that shit. But let's entertain. So, But for you, how do you think about creating tension? It's in the setup. It's in the, it's in like the, either, oh my God, like I have a joke in the special about Alzheimer's. And when I say the word Alzheimer's, the entire crowd gets silent. Like in this, in the joke we just showed, when I say, for example, there's a laugh in the audience that I had taken out in the audio of the special. Because I'm like, they're guessing, I'm clearly going to switch gears, but I don't want that. I want someone watching at home to think he's really going to attack the government <laughs> out of fucking
1: nowhere, uh, and then, but I had to take it out. So, at, at what, do you remember when you are like, oh, this joke works, or just sort of in general, when do you know, like, a joke, when do you decide a joke is done? Pretty quickly. I mean, the audience lets
0: me know. It's very rare that I'll keep trying a joke. I'll try it once, and when it's halfway out of my mouth, I'll know this is a bad joke. You know, when it, on the page, it all looks great to me. I think I'm the best. And then I go up, and it's like, oh, no, this is a terrible mistake. Uh, and some jokes, I'm like, if I tweak it, maybe a different word here or there,
1: but that's very rare. Yeah. That's 1% of my jokes. So you, you mentioned that you about the economy of words. Is it ultimately just, you, you're, at this point you've been writing jokes so long, you don't need to go back and edit, you're sort of editing as you're going? No, I just think the joke is an idea
0: that either works or it doesn't work. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That, like, it's not about the wording so much. And I write my jokes almost like a haiku. Like I, paw- I, I write a line and I pause it and write the new line where I would have paused in the sentence. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I, I realize an extra word very quickly and can pull it out of the, uh, the structure. But, uh, but yeah, I know almost right away. And it's either like, this joke is great or this joke is gone. And then I forget about it. Like, I won't leave. Like, I worked about a joke about, like, nuns hitting me with a ruler for, like, 15 years. And I just kept on having to forget it and come up with a new one every time. But if I had written down nuns and rulers, then I would never have yeah. been able to come to it from a new angle. I need that new angle. Did you figure out nuns and rulers? Yes. Yes. I forget what the fucking joke was now. Oh, yeah. The nuns would hit me with rulers, slap me in the face, anything to defend themselves. <laughs> but I was, I was very happy when I figured that out. One day, I would love a joke about alligator wrestling, and I've tried a hundred, and I not come up with it at all. But one day, you'll hear it, and you'll be like, fuck, he is... He's the king. Why alligator wrestling? I don't know. It popped into my head, and I was like, that's a challenge. There should be a joke there, and I cannot
1: find it, and I've written a fucking thousand of them. I (laughs) swear to God. Um, So, again, since you posted the set list, again, you did this set list, so this is going to be another question that you'll uh, call me a nerd for. So the section went, when you did it the first time, went baby drop into child protective, which is a joke about why your sister can't have kids, to uh, my half, which is the fence joke, into glass eye, into pennies, into blind janitor, the joke about the masturbating high school janitor. But by the special, it goes baby drop, into my half, into pennies, into glass eye, into child protective. So Mm -hmm. can you explain the debate and decision of how to order your jokes? I would love to, even though no one knows what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs)
0: It just came up that... like, I mean, in the beginning, I came up with a janitor joke about a janitor masturbating. And it kind of just... At the time, it fit where it fit with the baby jokes. And then by the time I was doing the special, it was like, this joke is kind of out of place, but it still kills. Let me move it up and put it somewhere else and then just keep the baby stuff to itself. So it wasn't like... It wasn't fucking rocket science, <laughs> but it was just like a... Let's move a couple things around
1: here. But even the order within the kid stuff is there reasons why one thing went one to another place?
0: Yes, because I think that in the order of the baby dropping jokes or the baby hurting jokes and there are quite a few, it's like you order them so that they don't guess the next one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I had to do that joke before I got into anything hurting kids because that's the only way that would surprise them. Yeah. It was like I couldn't hurt kids before that joke <laughs> and then afterwards you may as well get all the kids out of the way. <laughs>
1: Do you generally try to chunk them into the themes when you do... It happens naturally, to
0: be honest. It's not like, a, it's not a, like a, 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 a thing that I think about or like, I've got to keep this together. It just happens naturally. When you're doing an hour, yeah. it helps to
1: put it all together. So an- another thing I noticed in the set list... Oh, no. Oh, people are listening to this <laughs> on a different stage. looking at the set list, another thing that I noticed is uh, you had a joke on your set list called Hate Crime which was on your set list from March 2018 to October 2018 it was removed from your last set essentially right before you taped your special um, if, if you're open to it, can you talk about what happened and what is your thought process in removing it? Yes I, um, that's a great question um, I had a joke
0: in my act and again, I play the villain on stage for the most part Um, and I'm not the voice of reason and I had a joke that was why do they call it a hate crime if I love to do it (laughs) and it would get a big laugh and it was short enough that it would be quoted my most quoted jokes are not my best jokes, they're the shortest jokes because people can't, exactly, because people can people can tweet them, people can use them, and people can remember them. And then the, uh, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh happened. And I'm from Pittsburgh, and that's not like, it just made me mad. And I didn't want people even thinking as a joke that I was on that side at all. I don't mind people being confused about my politics or my morality, but a hate crime joke after that seemed like I just don't want to see this, and I dropped it from the act. I mean, I've had people be like, that's my favorite joke of your set, and I'm like, I dropped it, and they they can't believe that I would do it because of an actual event, but it was just like, I don't know, it changed things for me, and I I didn't want it out there.
1: Yeah. Preparing for this, I read and listened to a lot of interviews with you, and everyone wants to, you, to ask you about like, where is the line in comedy, and is political correctness killing in comedy? Uh, is pro- political correctness killing comedy, which you, you tend to push back on, since sort of without it, you wouldn't be. No, I wouldn't have anything to do. <laughs>
0: yeah. It was like, is is the football ruining the NFL? Like, no, you need the fucking thing to play the game. You need to have it. Like, I love political correctness. I love it. I support every piece of it. I don't care if they go too far. It's the only way I get to do
1: what I do. But I mean, but the thing that I was wondering about is for you, when there is a line that is just completely personal, how do you feel like how does it manifest? How do you define it? How has that evolved? It's evolved
0: as I've aged. You know, I'm 40 years old now. I'm not the same person I was when I started comedy at 23 and everything was funny. You know, uh, I remember Stephen Colbert had a quote that he was like, you know, you're young and you're edgy and everything is funny and then the, the horrible things you're joking about start to happen to people that you love and you care about and things become less funny. I always use the example that my dad has psoriasis, suffers from psoriasis. That if someone made a joke about psoriasis, I wouldn't laugh. But I wouldn't be upset. I wouldn't be offended. But as I get older and as I get more mature, I just think of things differently. And also, I've already done it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why do you not make rape jokes anymore? Because I had a fucking special where I did five of them. (laughs) And then I read the book Missoula. And I was like, fuck. Like, I don't think... I think this is funny as I did back then. But you change as a person. But it's not a...
1: It's just the way life works. Yeah. You you said before you're fascinated by offense and what offends people. As a person who's been doing things that have intentionally been edgy for almost 20 years now, what do you think you've learned about what people find offensive? I think people get upset, not at the joke,
0: but at the fact that people are laughing at the subject. Because I've had jokes that I'm like, this is skirted everything. Like this is a perfect joke about this subject and it does not make fun of it. It hits it in a certain way that builds the tension but releases it. And people will get mad because you laughed about Alzheimer's, not about the joke itself. Yeah. And I, again, is there a line in comedy? I used to say no. And now I say there's a million of them. Everybody's got one. I don't give a fuck about yours. It's my line that I worry about. Yeah. Is, it, is it cathartic for you? to discuss? Wait until the oh. applause dies Sorry. down. <laughs> Before you start the next question.
1: <laughs> is it cathartic for you to discuss sort of darker things? Do you feel like when you do it you'll feel better as a result? Do you think the audience does?
0: I think the audience does. I have people come up to me and be like, thank you for that. You know, thank you for, for talking about this. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I think that uh, people don't like being left out. You know, uh, like one of my openers tonight at the, the show I did where I did stand up was Robin Tran. And she is a trans uh, comedian. She's a, a female, uh, trans female. But she was like, I don't want to be left out. I don't want people making fun of everyone else and being like, I can't make fun of her. Do you know what I mean? That I'm like, I want to get everybody. And I want to be on the right side, but if I'm wrong,
1: it's still pretty fucking funny. <laughs> I think uh, every stand-up, once they get big enough, has to reckon with their audience, especially as it keep on getting bigger. they are people further removed from who they uh, imagine their audience being, I was thinking about reading reviews. Uh, one was, I found from The Federalist. Did you read that review? I, it did, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so then the I found out what The Federalist was. It was like,
1: <laughs> shit. The Federalist wrote a review praising the abortion closer for helping uh, the pro-life cause. In, in front of an audience right now, what do you want from an audience? What do you want for your audience getting to see from you? Honestly, I don't give a
0: flying fuck. Like, I show up to a show, if it's sold out, great. I don't care anything beyond that. I literally sell a t-shirt on my website that says, Anthony Jeselnik is nothing like his fans. <laughs> I don't know how many I've sold. I assume not many. But, like, I do not care. It's like, I'm glad that anyone shows up to hear this shit. Yeah. But I'm, j- I'm just doing me. i got my eyes on my own paper, and I
1: don't give a fuck. But does being misunderstood publicly, I guess, bother you? Did the Federalist thing? Not really. I mean, it's like, okay,
0: they wrote that, but like, who gives a shit? Like, I remember hearing, reading back in the day, that, I don't know if it was the Beatles or who it was, there was a band that was like really into suing everyone who talked shit on them. And that the Rolling Stones were like, we don't care what you write, write whatever, we're just going to ignore it. And I was like, that's the way to go that I really don't give a shit what the narrative is. I'm doing me.
1: Yeah. So for you, is it ultimately like you wrote the jokes, you've already done the part that you enjoy, and then the audience is how do you make money off of doing the thing that you already like doing, which is writing the thing. I don't even worry about
0: the fucking money anymore, to be honest. I'm just like, I'm going to show up and fucking rock out here, and if you're in, you're in. If you're not, I don't care. Like, I'm good.
1: I was thinking that ultimately, all your jokes are about the, the... Basically, we all die one day. It mm-hmm. um, which reminded me of Seinfeld, not necessarily the Seinfeld that a lot of people think. But there's, I believe, here that Jerry Seinfeld put a poster of the Earth from space in the Seinfeld writers' room to be like, none of this matters. Do you agree to that? Do you feel like you feel like your comedy succeeds in conveying that? No. I mean, I really feel like I want to try to make it
0: matter. Like, I really do believe that, especially early on, I wanted my comedy to be evergreen and I wanted it to last forever, that people could listen to my jokes in 50 years and still laugh at them because they're not talking about the current political climate or anything in the news. And then I've realized over the past, you know, 17, 18 years I've been doing comedy that that's impossible. Yeah. No matter how good you are or how evergreen the jokes are, nothing lasts forever. That it, it kind of freed me to just, you know, still be good, but I think that people take that lesson that I've learned and take it too far. Where I think there's a lot of comedy specials where it's someone who's just talking for an hour and they got the money and they're famous enough to get it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to put the work in so that this fucking kicks ass. I'm not just going to build a shitty house and be like, you can rent it for a little bit of money. (laughs) I'm going to build a goddamn mansion and you're going to fucking pay for it. I can't believe how
1: mad I just got, saying that sentence. You once said you write jokes for an angry 18-year-old that was just like you, um, that you, jokes that you would find funny when you were a teenager. Is that still who do you write for? No, I, I used to, every, every year on my birthday,
0: I would think back and I would be like, if I went back in time and visited myself at 18 years old, would I think I was cool? And I was always like, yeah, you'd be a fucking like comedian, like you'd be a famous comedian, like that's cool. And then one year I was like, why do I give a fuck what 18 year olds think? Like why would I ever care that now I'm just doing it for me as a person now and I don't think about that. But I think it, it took a while to get over and I think I've proven enough to my 18 year old self that it's, uh, it's okay. But
1: you no, me- I don't think that way. You mentioned being cool. I feel like more than most comedians you talk about you have desire to seem cool on stage. What is that? Why? I really hated
0: comedy for having to make fun of yourself. I thought of comedy, I loved, always loved comedy, but it was a lot of like, I know this shirt looks stupid, and it's like, why'd you wear the shirt, motherfucker? (laughs) Like, like you asked for that haircut, what are you doing? That to be cool in comedy was important to me. Uh, And I think like Sarah Silverman was the number one uh, person for that, where it was like, oh, you're hot, you're cool as shit, and you're still making everyone die laughing. Like, that's awesome. Like, maybe I would try this. But if Sarah Silverman didn't exist, I don't think I ever would have picked up a microphone because I would have thought of it as, like, I don't want to be fucking Drew Carey. Like, I
1: want to be... I want to be cool. Which kind of leads us to I want to talk about persona as Sarah Silverman was another comedian who famously had a persona for a while. Um, You described him... You used to describe your persona often as the devil... But I feel like more interesting you describe it as sort of a character that you're sort of fascinated by How has it sort of evolved to be a more interesting thing for you? To be more than just sort of... Honestly,
0: I just think the devil's gotten older You know what I mean? Like, people are always like... When people get upset about political correctness and comedy They're like, I'm being the devil's advocate I'm starting a conversation And I always hate that I'm not the devil's advocate I am the devil I'm not trying to start a conversation. I'm ending it. That's how I think about things. And I think everyone else who is bitching about it is just bitching. And like, why complain? Why complain about this? Either do your job and make them laugh or shut the fuck up. I can't stand this like PC's ruining comedy. Get your shit together. (laughs) Go put on a show. Fuck all of you.
1: (laughs) Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about this new phone service called Visible. See, a lot of phone services these days are a bit sneaky. Not unlike John Turturro's character in Mr. Deeds. They tack on hidden fees to your phone bill and hope you don't notice. Not Visible. With Visible, you get unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just 40 bucks a month flat. Every time, that's it. Transparency is like their whole deal. No tricks, no shenanigans, no BS, which I gotta say is uh, pretty chill. If you want to learn more, check out visible.com. Now, back to the show. I mean, before you're criticizing comedians that were being too personal or confessional on stage, but Especially with this I hate spe- most comedy. Yeah, clearly. But in this special, more so, you, there's parts where you're, there's parts of you that are that are coming out that are the real you. How did you decide to use those things, um, if, if any ways, to sort of create this sort of a more complicated puzzle or sort of a paradox of not knowing what you're being truthful and when trying to, when when you're being truthful, and when you're being this character. It's just the writing. I mean, I write my way out
0: of things. It's like, how am I going to get through this? I'm going to write my way through it. I don't know what the, what, what's going to come out of it, what's going to be good, what's going to be bad. I'm just trying new things until I get to an hour. Yeah. Like, that's literally it. It's just like, keep on writing, keep on performing until you have an hour that you're proud of, and then film it. Uh, I, but I don't, there's no, like, I'm on a mission to do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Not yet, anyway. Um, Gary Gullman is a comedian who, he gives, he tweets out daily Mm stand-up advice. I see those. Huh? I see those. I think some of them are pretty good.
0: Sure, some of them.
1: Sure. He's doing them every day. Um, The one I like the best uh, is about vulnerability, and he says essentially every great stand-up demands some amount of vulnerability. And at first, just doing stand-up is a vulnerable act. But his opinion is, like, eventually you have to be more personal to get the same thing or something. Do you feel like your comedy has, is vulnerable in any way? No. Not on stage or not, but do you no, feel not like? not
0: in any way whatsoever. I mean, Christ. I remember, like, auditioning for Letterman, and the Letterman guy, Eddie Brill, was like, you're not vulnerable enough. Letterman likes vulnerable. And I went to my manager, and I was like, what do I do with that? And he was like, fucking nothing. Like, <laughs> what are you going to do? Like, you're not vulnerable. I despise vulnerability in comedy because it's asking for sympathy. I don't want your sympathy. I want to be so good that I make you laugh and have a great night. I don't want you to like relate to me or feel bad for me or be like, wow, that was amazing that he shared that. I want to knock you on your fucking heels and send you out being like, holy fuck, that guy worked his ass off to make us laugh for an hour.
1: But Gary Goldman is very funny. Yeah. Uh, over time, there are certain ways in which personas go. You know, you have Dice who decided to just become that person. Um, Natasha Leggero sort of merged in an interesting way with the person when she on stage. Sarah seemingly deliberately changed the, her persona to be closer to what she was. Or Steve Martin quit stand-up because he's like, the persona is done. You've been doing a version of this for 20 or so years um, you know, he's a character you find fascinating. Is there a direction you feel like he has to go next? Do you feel like there's limits to it? No limits. I just think
0: that what I do next will be fascinating only because I believe what I've just done and just put out was my best yet. After 17 years of comedy, that's my best And people go downhill fucking fast if they stop working as hard. And they can because they have the name and people will buy tickets. But it's like, how can I keep doing this and still keep it at a high enough level? Like, success hasn't made me relax. It's put more pressure on me. And so I think that whatever I do next, whether it's more personal, less personal, just strictly clever, I do not know but I will not put out another special without it being amazing and better than what I've just done. Do you feel like it will be whatever this persona is, but you don't
1: know what it is yet?
0: You are, the persona this- changes. I mean, I, if you had told me I would drop the hate crime joke five years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. But I, again, I'm getting older. I'm, I like the idea of being this fucking punk rock goddamn legend and then softening as I get old. And being kind of a grandpa figure where you can get away with more and you can do more. Like, I like the evolution. I don't need to just stick to this one thing, but I don't know where it's going to go. I really have to write my way into it and out of it. So, who knows? But I'm not worried. It's just like, what what comes naturally? I have to just take the time.
1: When you talk about this special, you have unsurprisingly very lofty goals or dreams of how, what it, you wanted it to be and its legacy you described you want to be classic you want it to contribute to the evolution of comedy let's say it does this let's say you're able to successfully control the evolution of comedy via this what do you want from comedy what do you feel like this hopefully pushes comedy in what direction I want to ruin it
0: <laughs> I want everyone who tries to do comedy to be a pale imitation of me I want to ruin a generation of comics who try to do what I do and fucking fail. I want to just fucking take it off its hinges. Like, I do not give a flying fuck. And I love other comedians. I think, like, the more absurdist people are doing great work right now, and there are comics who are amazing. But for what I do, the way I do it, I'm the fucking best of all time, and I hope I fucking destroy people. I hope people try to be like me and fuck their whole lives
1: up. So in what way would that contribute to the evolution of comedy? It puts a dead-end
0: sign on a street that you should not go down. It's like, if someone's like, oh, I'm I'm into stand-up comedy. Oh, what do you do? I'm like, Andy Kaufman, get the fuck out of my face. You're the worst, and you know it. He was the one guy who could do that, that I'm like, I want to just end a whole branch of comedy that is just mine, and no one else can come close. That's my goal.
1: So you want to be the culmination of a, the style. This special is the pinnacle of whatever the thing
0: is that you're doing. I think it's all related. I think, it's all, I think of my work as a body, of, a body of work. I don't think of it as one special. Like this, I think they were all great. I think Shakespeare, my first album, is some of the best material I've ever done. And I could never top it. Uh, but it was before people were doing specials every fucking year. So it was like, it's a different thing. But I, I, I think that when it all comes down to it, when I'm dead and gone, you can buy my five-album box set and listen to it and be like, God damn, these are great jokes. And that's all I give a fuck about.
1: You plan on doing one more album and then die?
0: Honestly, after firing the maternity ward, I was like, this is so good that I don't know how I'm going to top it, but I'm going to do my best to try. And I think after that again, I'm 40 now. I could see myself leaving. I see some comedians who stay on because the money gets better and better no matter how bad you get. The money gets better as you get older and have more of a name. And I do not want to be that. I do not want to be the guy who's showing up for the paycheck and just talking. That terrifies me. So I really want to go out on top. I think my last special will be my worst special. And I'll be like, I didn't get it. I'm done.
1: Do you think it's because Larger stand-ups, they get their audience. They appeal to that audience, and then they're like, "This is great." They're laughing, and they're, mm-hmm. do you, and it's because you do not care about your audience. People will laugh because they like they like you and they want to laugh at you.
0: I want you to not like me and laugh despite that. So, if people start to like me so much that whatever I say gets a laugh, I'll quit. You describe this as the best thing you've done. What does? Why is it better? What is better? I think it's better because I had three hours of comedy before it that covered similar subjects, and this was an evolution of it that I think, even if you know that I'm going to have a twist, you do not know what the twist is. And I still get you, and I think I build on it. I just think the evolution is impressive. Yeah.
1: I think everything I do is impressive. Sure.
0: LAUGHTER
1: you described it as a, as a masterpiece. Masterpieces sometimes feel like... I can't wait to listen to this podcast.
0: <laughs> Just to lay in bed and be like, God damn, you are full of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> of
1: yourself. Masterpieces can sometimes feel like culminations or starting points. Does this feel like a culmination of things you're doing? Right now, obviously you won't know, but does it feel like right now that it was a culmination of things you're working on or a, a starting point of a direction you're going?
0: I think I dropped a gem in the middle of a time where people are putting out specials every fucking week and then it'll be appreciated later on. You know what I mean? Like, I remember reading uh, Hammer of the Gods, like the Led Zeppelin biography, and, like, critics hated them. And I, like, grew up loving Led Zeppelin, and I'm like, I think I'll be a little bit like that. That, like, people now are just like, okay, whatever, but I think this will stand the test of time because of the quality and the work I put into it. And I really do think, it's not like I'm better, it's just that I took more time, and I, I focused more. But critics like you now. The critics Now, us. yes. Thoughts and Prayers did not get this reception. I think part of this, it's like when Al Pacino won an Oscar for Son of a Woman, not his best movie but it was like, a, it was like you, were, you were giving him an award for all he's done, that I think Thoughts and Prayers was ignored a little bit, and that after five years or four years, people were like, actually, that was great. We should give this one some props. And I think years from now, people will look back and be like, this was better than we gave it credit for at the time yeah. because
1: of the comedy boom and how it goes. And that's the goal. So um, a couple hours ago, you did a set and I watched the two things you are doing which is, there? I mean, it's probably 30 minutes, you did two stories, which I would describe it as your persona trying to do the right thing and messing up or things not going well. That is different than the things that, the journeys, they're both also, I think, true stories. What does that suggest about where you're at right now? What do you like about the stories other than the fact that they work? Why do you like trying to be in those areas? I like
0: the idea of being the bad guy who becomes the hero. If you've ever watched Deadwood, the TV show, Al Swearengen, the first season is the villain. In the second season, people come along who are worse than him and he has to fight them and he becomes the hero. And I like the idea of being an Al Swearengen that like this motherfucker has cut some throats. But he's on our side. So as I get older, and as I get wiser, and as I just have to do this more often, I like the idea of becoming a good guy,
1: but the good guy that no one wants to be in the (laughs) same room with. Yeah, I was trying to think of another comedy anti-hero, like in the same way. I mean, listen, I'm the best. (laughs) Uh, So now it's time for our final segment, if you can play that sound cue. (laughs) this is the laughing round it's like a lightning round but because it's comedy it's the laughing round (laughs) for months I was like I'm going to do this and Anthony's going to hate it so much I was having so much fun I know I knew I was like he's going to hate it but it's too late but you'll like this part so um, often people ask me what my favorite joke is and and I have a hard time thinking about it because there's so many, but there's one that I always remember and it's a joke that you told. It's from the roast of Roseanne. And Roseanne, you were notorious for being
0: a tyrant on your sitcom. In fact, the entire cast and crew always had to walk on eggshells around you because you just could not stop eating eggs.
1: (laughs) I love that joke. That's your favorite? That is what... Truly, it is my... It's definitely my favorite roast joke, but it's the joke I think of when people go, what's your favorite joke? It's funny. I just interviewed David
0: Spade for my TV show uh, coming up on Comedy Central in September. And my favorite joke of all time, that was not mine, is David Spade's joke uh, from his uh, uh, HBO special, The Big Hit, where he says, you know, John Bonnet Ramsey's not that hot without the makeup. <laughs> And it, like, just destroyed me. <laughs> that it's my favorite joke of all time. That I love, like, people's favorite jokes are never the ones you would think. It's just like, oh, this, uh, this just hit somebody. But that is, that's, not, that's, like, my fifth favorite joke from that roast. But it, is but it not,
1: works. It, it works, and I'm glad that people love it. What can you tell me a little bit? We talked for an hour about one joke. We're going to talk about a minute for that one. What, do you remember writing that? Do you remember how you went into that Roseanne roast? The
0: Roseanne roast was difficult because they wanted to make it classier. Like, they wanted to, like, to kind of class it up a little bit and get better, better people. Comedy Central always thinks that, like, George Clooney is going to do a roast. And it's like, no, he will not. Um, but for Roseanne, they were different. And it was like, I was like, this is me and, like, a bunch of women in their 60s. And I did not want to be the guy who came on and made fun of women for being old. You know what I mean? I wanted to be a diff- have a different topic. And for Roseanne, it was like, the fat jokes seemed to be the best way to hit her and not be... I mean, one of my favorite jokes I've ever written in a roast was, Roseanne, you're a feminist icon, but you've made so many men rich in your life. Tom Arnold, John Goodman, the guy who owns the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> like, that to me was like, amazing to say to like an older woman that i was like these are the jokes that i want that the egg thing just worked really well but i didn't think it was that great a joke it just killed every time i told it so i was like let's keep it let's keep it in there
1: it's very it's a very silly image yes it's like her like a like donkey kong
0: yeah and you know that she was a terror backstage for all her shows (laughs) so yeah people people enjoyed that i'm i'm one of the best at what i do Do you know any joke jokes? Do you have your favorite joke jokes? One of my, uh, there's a comedian joke that I love that only comedians would get. I don't know if you guys will even laugh at it. Where a comedian takes his girlfriend home to meet his parents. And right before they walk in the front door, he turns around to her and goes, what do you want me to say about you? (laughs) No one understands that. It's like an MC will always be like, what do you want me to say about you before you go on stage? So it's like a funny comedian thing. My favorite joke joke, street joke, uh, a traveling salesman is going down the street, going house to house. He knocks on a door, and an eight-year-old boy answers. And he's wearing lingerie, women's lingerie, a silk robe, smoking a cigar, and holding a glass of scotch. And the salesman says, uh, little boy, are your parents home? And the little boy looks at him and says, what the fuck do you think?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Jeselnik. Thank you guys so much. Thank you very Have much. A Have a good closer pleasure. fest. Sure. I'm Jesse Thank David you. Fox. This has been Good One. That's it for another episode of Good One. Anthony Jeselnik's Fire in the Maternity Ward is available to stream on Netflix. Anthony's new TV show, Good Talk, premieres on Comedy Central in September. Follow him on Twitter, at Anthony Jeselnik. Good One is produced by Bank with research help from Serena Debbie. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them, what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one.
0: That was a headgum Podcast.